Thank you, Tim. We'll be in Acts chapter 17 this morning. Acts 17. Um, it's not enough for me to attack one false god at a time. We're going to go for two this morning. So uh, we're going to have a war on two fronts, if you will. Acts chapter 17. Uh, we, we have been talking about the gods of our age. We've talked about those false gods that people tend to worship. Uh, we talked about the god of self which is not just the God of our age, it's the God of every age. We, we constantly want to make ourselves to be God. We talked about the God of humanity where even if you don't put faith in yourself, just putting faith in, in human beings as a whole, that with the right training and the right education and the, and, and, you know, you just get all the, all the variables right, then, then humans will rise to the occasion. We talked about, the God of gender ideology, how we can define what truth is on even the most basic terms, and we chase after that false God. We've talked about the tool, not necessarily a God, but the tool of false truths, lies that are perpetrated that keep us from knowing the truth, and the truth setting us free, as Jesus put it. Now, it used to be Men would worship physical objects. There had to be some kind of statue or some sort of idol or something physical. And if you go to many parts of the world, you'll see the same things. You'll see Buddha statues in some people's homes. You'll see images of gurus and saints and venerated people and things. You'll see totem poles among indigenous peoples. But we in Western culture, we are much too sophisticated to worship some kind of thing. So instead, we worship ideologies, abstractions. We worship certain ideas. We might use physical symbols, but we venerate something you can't see or touch or smell or taste or feel. And today I want to talk about two of those abstract ideas that we often worship, the new and the old. <laughs> you don't have to go very far to see either one of these at play. Many worship at the idol of the new, they have to have the latest of technology, the, the newest way of doing things, the, follow the newest fads. This is why someone's Facebook page changes every couple weeks as different news stories happen. And so they, one day they put up a Ukraine flag because that's what's popular. And the next day they put up a totally different thing because there's something else that has replaced it. They go from thing to thing to thing to thing, fad to fad to fad. You see it in fashion. God forbid you wear what was cool last year. No, you have to have the latest clothing, right? The newest style. <laughs> you just walk through a high school and watch that play out. You see it over, when you, when you look at the cell phone store, when there's a new phone coming out and there's a line around the building of people camped out just to get that new phone. Willing to pay lots of money for it too. You see... The obsession when you take a child shopping and there's a new cereal with their superhero on it. Oh, it, you've got to get that cereal. It doesn't matter that there's five other cereals just like it, just with different, different people on the package. No, no, that doesn't matter. You see it when certain individuals have to buy a new car every two years because, well, this one's starting to get old. We sometimes are totally bewitched by the new. But at the same time, sometimes we don't fall into that trap. We fall into the opposite trap, and we become bewitched by the old. 
Man, they don't make them like they used to. I know someone who lives on a farm. They've got a truck that's probably around a 94, 95 model truck. It's all beat up and there's rust on it and doesn't matter. It runs just fine. Why should I buy a new truck when the one I got is just fine? And, and, and besides, I don't need all those fancy doodads. Man, that newfangled technology. I can't even, I don't even know how to turn it on, nonetheless, how to work it. You see it. <laughs> you see it in your closet. How many of you have clothes you don't fit into anymore? Notice my hand is up. I'm not doing that just to show you. I'm doing that because I have clothes I don't wear anymore. And yet they're still there. Well, I might fit into them one day. You know, one of these days, I'm going to lose a few pounds, and that's going to fit again. And the problem is that we tend to go to an extreme on these things. For the one who is chasing after the new, the old doesn't matter anymore. They'll throw it out. Old people, we don't need them. They're just a drain on society anyway. Old ideas, long past that. Man, the new thinkers have answered all the objections and figured everything out. And even if they haven't figured everything out, they got it a whole lot better than those old guys did. They're, those things are past their prime. Or those that come to the old and want to disregard the new. Why do you want to change what works? I mean, we've been doing this for hundreds of years. Give me that old time religion. It's good enough for Moses. It's good enough for me. We disregard the new. We look at it as though, as though it's a scourge. And sometimes we're right to reject the old. Any of you remember what hairstyle you had in high school? I was pretty close to this. I was, it was shorter though. I had it down to a zero in high school. But I don't want to think about my middle school haircut. Some of y'all might know what I'm talking about when I say this. I had the Zach Morris. You know what that is? It's basically like a bowl cut. That was my haircut in middle school. I, it pains me every time I think of it. Shag carpet, anyone? I tried to get shag carpet in here. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I didn't. How many of you remember, I remember in my childhood, blowing the Nintendo cartridge trying to get it to work? Or maybe, maybe you had trouble putting the 45 on without scratching it up. There are certain things, old things, that, that need to stay in the past. But there's also certain new things that really don't belong either. There are new things that are unnecessary. They create more problems than they actually solve. The problem is that when we disregard one or the other and, and we only pursue the new or we only pursue the old, it leaves us lacking. For example, if you're constantly pursuing the new, well, there's a, there's a verse that I think puts it so vividly, and I'm sorry for the mental image, okay? But, you know, sometimes God's Word just tells it like it is, and sometimes the image that comes to our mind is not a comfortable one. But man does it get the point across. Proverbs 26, 11 says, Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Yes, I know, that is not a pretty mental picture, but it's not meant to be. It's meant to show you just how terrible it is for the fool because he cannot learn from the past. Constantly pursuing the new means that we'll never learn. If we only pursue the new and we reject the old, we forget the old, we never look at the old, then we never learn from past mistakes. What's the saying? Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it because those folks made the same stupid choices back there. 
Maybe it was a little different time. Maybe it was a little different circumstance. But if you will learn from the past, you can learn things that you might not know just only looking at the future. And see, when we reject the old completely and we only pursue the new, we never learn from our mistakes. We're doomed to folly. God prophesies about his people through Moses in Deuteronomy 32. He says, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. Watch this. To gods they had never known. They were enamored with the new gods. The gods that they did not know. The gods that their fathers did not know. The gods of the people that they came into the land and overwhelmed those people, but they took their gods anyway. How ridiculous is it to say, well, we beat you, but we like your gods better than our gods, so we'll take your gods. The gods were that good. They could have stopped you, right? That's what they did. Watch this, verse 18. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. They didn't care about the old. They were enamored with the new. And as a result, verse 19, the Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And this is his people. This isn't somebody else. This isn't some other nation. This is God's own people. And they rejected the old. They rejected what they knew was true to pursue something new. And in the process, they forgot everything they needed to know. But there's a problem going the opposite direction too. Because constantly pursuing the old means we'll never grow. When we pursue the new, we don't learn because we don't look at the past mistakes. But when we pursue the old and only the old, we never grow. In fact, God's way of growing us is often through the new. Isaiah 43, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When we come in Christ, God makes us new. And he doesn't just make us new. Revelation 21, 5. Behold, I am making all things new, he says. You see, God's work isn't just in the old. We look at the old and we look at the old and we look at the old and we say, oh, that's what God has always done. And God says, no, 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 I'm doing something new here. Don't just pay attention to what I used to do. Look at what I'm doing right now. We've been talking in this, in this, uh, in this study, been study, experiencing God. One of the things that, that was, uh, quite, quite the insight that, that uh, Blackaby says is that God doesn't come to people the same way twice in scripture how many people have a burning bush just one god doesn't use a burning bush again how many people does god speak to in the midst of the raging storm how many does he speak to in the still after the earthquake and the storm you see god speaks in different ways to different people at different times He always changes up the way that he gets our attention, but he always gets our attention. God isn't just about doing the same old thing. He's doing new things. And those new things are the way that he grows us and matures us and makes us more like him. 
In fact, God's working around us. Open your eyes and you'll see it. Open your eyes and you'll see that person that's been talking about spiritually related things. I had someone to say this week, they have someone they work with asking questions. God's doing a new work. I've been able to have conversations with people at work in the last six months that I had not been able to have in a couple of years prior. People being more open to talking about things, to talking about spiritual things. And I've gotten into a place now where I am better able to help younger people do the things that honor God more so than I've ever been able to. He's doing a new work. What work is he doing around you? Have, have you? have you looked? Are you paying attention? Are you worried about what used to be? Are you looking back at the past and saying, well, you know, God did a lot of things, but that was a long time ago. See, my heart aches. My heart aches because sometimes we discount what God is doing now because it's just not as good as it used to be. When they were building the second temple, there were some older folks there. They laid the foundation. There's some older folks there and they're crying because they remember the glory of Solomon's temple. And this foundation ain't nearly as big. When the temple would eventually be finished, it would not be as nice. There wouldn't be all the gold, the intricate detail, the fine craftsmanship in the wood and in the metals, the bronze and the silver. They remember what used to be, and this just doesn't look like it compares at all. But what does God say about that temple? He says, the glory of this temple shall be greater than the former. And do you know why? Because that would be the temple where God would come in human flesh. That would be the temple where Jesus would teach. That would be the temple where he would put a couple of older people at peace because they've seen God, Messiah. See, God does old and new, and we need to appreciate both. As I was thinking about this old and new, uh, my mind, I, 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 was, I was looking in Scripture, where, where is a good place where we can see these two interacting? And I thought about the ancient city of Athens. Athens. <laughs> Athens is one of those places where old and new really came together. In fact, Luke describes the men of Athens this way in Acts 17, verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They are, they are so enamored with the new in Athens that the topics of conversation are always the newest things, the newest ideas, the newest religious things, the newest theories the newest theologies, the newest philosophies. This was the home of Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Ancient Athens was the place on the cutting edge of thought. It was the first city to be a democracy, was Athens. This is one of those places where the new was embraced with open arms. What's interesting, though, is that Athens is also a place that embraced the old as well. In just a moment, we're going to read about a place where Paul preaches, a place called the Areopagus. The Areopagus was an institution that was almost 800 years old by the time Paul spoke there, and it was highly venerated. It didn't have nearly the power in that day that it had in prior days. At one point, 
That's where the city was run. By Paul's day, it was just a shell of that power, but man, it still had the prestige. I mean, after all, according to the myth, Athena herself started the Areopagus. Now, we know that's not true because Athena is not a real god. But, man, when you got a pedigree like that in the city named for that god, or maybe the god was named for that city, we don't really know. In either case, they shared the same name. You think that might be, that might be a little bit of prestige? This was a city that could embrace both old and new. The traditions and the value of the old, the prestige of things from years gone by, but also the newest ideas and trends. Athens. Well, I tell you what, just take a little stroll through the Agora in ancient Athens. Look at the picture here of the Stoa of Atalos. This was a place where all kinds of vendors would go in there and set up their shops and you could walk around and eat all kinds of food, get all kinds of goodies and, and trinkets and things. And while you're there, you're going to have some great conversations because all uh, everybody's talking about the newest ideas. In, in Athens, it might have seemed everyone was a philosopher. And the gods, the gods were a plenty in Athens. Luke describes it this way. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he's waiting for uh, Timothy and Silas. They're in Berea still, where they were uh, in the prior chapter. While he's waiting for them, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was full of idols. Do you hear the burden on Paul's heart? He sees these idols, and he sees this idol to this god, and this idol to this god, and this idol to this goddess. And this one over here, he looks up from, from the city. You can look up about 500 or so feet, 515, 520 feet up, and you could see the Acropolis. You could see the, the temples around the city to various gods and goddesses. You saw all these kinds of things. You could see the reliefs of gods and goddesses engaging in various actions and things, doing various things, carved into the sides of buildings. He sees all of this and his heart burns within him for this people. How could this home of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle be so void of knowledge and so blind to the truth? You see, when you're constantly pursuing the new, it always leaves you wanting more. The gods weren't ever enough. They had to have more. What if we forget one? That's why he points out to them as he starts talking to them, you even have a statue to an unknown God. You're not even sure you've covered it all, so you just want to cover your base just in case there's one you don't know about yet. They're always wanting more. They're always, they're always incomplete in their worship because there might be something or someone else that we're not, we're not worshiping. It always leaves you wanting more. That's why... God puts as the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. You shall not covet. Why? Because you're always wanting more when you're constantly pursuing the new. You are always left empty. Thomas Brooks said it this way, a man may have enough of the world to sink him, but he can never have enough to satisfy him. You cannot have enough to satisfy the desires of your heart. We are not made that way. We are made to want something different. And every time we try to fill it with the new, and every time we try to pursue the new, it always leaves us empty because the new isn't what we need. God is. 
No matter how up to date, latest and greatest it might happens to be, all it does is leave us empty. Only God can satisfy. However, however, the same problem occurs when we chase the old. Constantly pursuing the old leaves us wanting more too. Just as rejecting the new leaves us empty, just as pursuing the new leaves us empty, so does pursuing the old. You know why? Because we miss out. Psalm 33 says, sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. This isn't the only time the psalm says that. I count at least six times that we're told to sing to God a new song or that God put a new song in my mouth. When God does something great, you know what happens in the Old Testament? His people start singing to him, but they don't sing the old hymns. They don't sing the things that they've always sung because God has done something different. They sing a new song. Exodus, God parts the Red Sea. They come across. Egypt's army tries to come across and God says, "Eh, I'm tired of holding these waters up and drowns Pharaoh's army. You know what immediately happens after that? They start singing a song of praise to God, but it's not the old song. It's the new song because he has just done something they've never seen before. And so they sing about that. When we sing to God the new songs, it testifies that God has done new work among us. If all we do is we look back to the old and look back to the old and look back to the old, we never, never see what God is doing in the present. And it always leaves us wanting more. Oh, if I could just go back to the old days. If I could just, man, if we could just return to normal, the way things used to be. If we only praise God with old music, called him by his old name, how, how would we know anything more about him than we've already known? If your God hasn't done anything recently, I'm afraid you might have the wrong God. If your God isn't living and active, then your God is too small. So we can't make the mistake of rejecting the old because we're found wanting. We can't reject the new either because that also leaves us lacking. So then, how do we find the right balance? How do we keep enough of the old and bring in enough of the new that we glorify God in the process? But what did Paul do? Acts chapter 17, what what does Paul do as he's walking around and he sees this and he's starting to engage people in conversation? They bring him to the Areopagus and he gets a chance to defend his faith. What does he do? Well, he makes a case for Christ. But he does so by appealing both to old and new. Skip down to verse 22, Carrie. Be a few down. Yes, 22. This is the beginning of what Paul is saying to them. He says, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. What does he do? He starts where they are. He says, you know, I've been looking around and I see you guys are very religious. I've seen all kinds of different idols to worship and one of them even says to the unknown God, let me show you that God you don't know. He quotes from some of the newer ideas of the Stoics. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Does that sound, does that sound familiar? That's a biblical idea too, isn't it? 
Isn't it amazing how sometimes the world accidentally gets it right? Sometimes the secular theologian, the secular uh, philosopher, scientist will stumble upon a theological truth. That's exactly what happens here. In him we live and move and have our being. Well, that, that's definitely true of God, isn't it? Then he adds another one, a poet, for we are indeed his offspring. You see what Paul's doing here? He's pulling from their old and their new. He's pulling from the ideas that are hundreds of years old by this time, but he's also pulling from the ideas that many in the crowd currently espouse. And he's saying, hey, look at how these things fit together. He appeals to the old. Back in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. Now that's really old because, you know, there's nothing before the beginning, is there? He goes all the way back to the beginning. He does not live in temples made by man. He is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. Then in verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Do do you see how he's combining the old and the new? He's taking the ideas that they have. He's taking the things that are true from creation on. And he's showing how the new things and the old things are all pointing to this one truth. What truth? The truth of the gospel. He's contextualizing the gospel to where these people are, helping them to see how their ideas, though they might be wrong in many places, are pointing toward the truth. He's not watering it down. He's not over-philosophizing it either. You know what he's doing? He's saying this is the truth. Let me show you how what you believe leads you to the truth. He says, you worship what you don't know. Let me show you. Let me show you what you don't know. He doesn't just accept the new. He doesn't just accept the old. He engages old with new to get to the truth. And it's because of that that they're willing to listen. We need both old and new. There is a place for the old, and there is a place for the new, but neither deserves the place of God. The old can guard us from rushing into folly, teaching us the lessons that we need to know so that we don't accept the new things that will lead us down the paths that we've made mistakes before, that others have made mistakes before. We need the new to reinvigorate us and to give us fresh understanding of the truths the old has to reveal. We need the old to learn. We need the new to grow. We need the old to remember our past and the new to create our future. But neither one can be God. We cannot worship the idol of new. We cannot worship the old either. Paul strikes the balance by focusing everything on Christ, the old and the new, all subjected to Christ. When we subject the memory of the old and the appeal of the new to the glory of God, we can put both in their proper place. We can realize just how much of both we need and employ it to God's glory, not to keep things as they always were, not to chase after the latest fad. Our mission is the glory of God. So the Athenians, when they listen to Paul, they give him mixed reviews. 
Verse 32 tells us that when he preached about the resurrection, some mocked, some hesitated, some believed. In fact, one of, one of those esteemed men who made up that council of the Areopagus was named Dionysius. He believed. That's not new either, by the way. When we preach the gospel, when we show others the truth of Jesus Christ, some will mock, some will hesitate, some will believe. We don't have any control over what people do with the gospel, but God has been calling men to repentance since the Garden of Eden. No matter what option is chosen, life changes dramatically, by the way. You can't be the same after God has confronted you and you've made your choice. So we have a choice to make. Are we going to worship the new? Are we going to worship the old? Are we going to worship Jesus Christ? Pray with me. Father, you've called us to repent of sins and trust you. Many of us in the room have already done that. We have already trusted you with our lives, with our souls. We've already given you control. We have already asked you to be our Lord. But you know, sometimes we we like to take the wheel ourselves and rather than you be Lord, we try to let you be co-Lord. Father, forgive us when we do that. Lord, help us to worship you. Not to worship the way things used to be. Not to worship the way things ought to be. But to worship the creator of all things. Father, help us to worship you and you alone. And to take the old and the new. And to submit them to your glory. To your will. To your sovereignty. Lord, in this time you're working in our hearts. Whatever you're doing. Whatever you're leading us to do, Father, I pray that we would respond in obedience. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen.